Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Imperfect Leaders. If you like today's show, please consider sharing us with your friends. Until then, sit back and enjoy today's episode. Today's guest, Greg Sands, started a venture capital firm called Costa Noa. In less than a decade, this amazing firm has since emerged as one of the most well-respected and successful venture capital firms in the entire world. Early stage entrepreneurs flocked to Costa Noa, eager to begin a lifelong relationship with Greg and his amazing colleagues. Greg is one of the smartest, nicest, and most content leaders you'll ever have the pleasure of meeting. But it wasn't always this way. He's worked his entire life to become more self-aware, to become more comfortable in his own skin, to embrace his imperfections and his authentic leadership style, and frankly, to figure out his place in life. Ultimately, he found his destiny, or I should say, he created his destiny at Costa Nova Ventures. So I hope you'll enjoy today's conversation with my new friend, Greg Sands. And so, as you well know, this podcast is called Imperfect Leaders, and and as successful as you are, uh, and as great as your firm is, there's no such thing as a perfect leader or even a perfect human being. So, I kind of want to hear about your your pain and your discomfort and your struggles. But let, let's go way back. Where did you grow up, and what were you like as a kid, and what was your family like? I, you know, was always a great student, but I it was hard sitting at a desk, and I was. Um, uh, so I was kind of, you know, in people's face and, you know, ultimately I think it really was the case that spending time outdoors and playing sports gave me a place to channel that and make that productive. I played uh, football and ice hockey. I was a uh, halfback and linebacker. And then in hockey, I was a defenseman. Did you have a natural uh, proclivity for football and, and were, you, were you good right away or did it take a lot of work? I was reasonably good right away. Uh, but I, by which I mean in the bell curve, but I think one of the things that I learned there is the human capacity to transform oneself and transform one's body. And, you know, the specific example is I was, you know, I had a, uh, I was, I was a high school running back. There were two of us, you know, my junior year, I didn't get the ball that much. I was more of a blocking back. I was kind of frustrated and I basically decided to, uh, you know, I decided that I was going to work on speed hmm. and I, uh, I went out for the track team that I wanted to be a sprinter. They, I was the strongest kid in the school. So they put me at, you know, throwing the shot, put in the discus. And I basically quit to go spend all my time running. And I came back and ended up being the, you know, primary ball carrier and even primary receiver the next year, because I literally had just put in the work to transform my body and transform my capabilities. What, what is it that motivated you to put in the work to become so much faster? I mean, did you feel frustrated because you weren't getting the ball on the, on your football team? Or was it just some sort of natural competitiveness? Like, what is it that drove you to do that? You know, it's, you know we talk about this a lot in the context of where does this natural drive come from? And I, and I know in, in myself, like I just have, I, I literally, it comes up from the earth mm-hmm. and, uh, and, you know, we do look for people who have that drive and that intensity and can work with the velocity that a startup requires. I honestly think that the, you know, it comes from good places and bad places. It comes from fear of failure. It comes from fear of not being good enough. And then I think as I've 
developed and grown up and matured, it comes from, uh, you know, sort of a form of um, just seeing, testing myself, seeing what I can be, seeing what I can get done, more of a form of self-actualization. But but earlier, though, in high school and just focused on you, do you think that maybe it was fear of failure or just not being good enough or maybe, you know, not stacking up to some of the other folks on the team that you felt were better or faster than you? I, I think for sure during that period, it was it came from fear of failure or fear of not being good enough. But I honestly, I think that that uh, those negative emotions, they're deeper than just you know, the, the other members of the football team, they're, you know, do I belong in this school? <laughs> Can I find my place socially in this school? Am I, you know, good enough to make my parents proud? I think those things are very primal and much deeper than that, you know, tangible stuff of the people right around us. So then, you know, speaking of, am I good enough? You decided to go to Harvard. You know, I was, I was fortunate to be, I'll say, um, you know, re recruited as a, um, D1, a hockey player, um, you know, Ivy League schools, you know, University of Minnesota or North Dakota or Boston College didn't 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 care about me. But I was at that intersection of very good student and uh, and, and very good hockey player. You know, I ultimately it, it sounds kind of ridiculous to say it, but of the schools where I had options, um, Harvard had the best hockey program. And I really uh, thought I, I wanted to push myself and I wanted to see if I could make it happen. And I think, you know, it's interesting to note, the, the answer was, no, I couldn't. <laughs> they were better than I was. I showed up there and realized uh, that there were basically five guys who were NHL draft picks, and there were five guys who were there as cannon fodder, and I was cannon fodder. So how did that make you feel? I mean, and what did you do about it? I sustained an injury very early on. I played uh, JV for uh, a bit, and then I realized it wasn't really in the cards. And I decided to focus on other things. And as I said, I was always a, you know, a, a reader and a, and a student. But that, I will say that did kick off a bit of exploration. I spent that part of my uh, life, I would say, wandering and looking for the next thing. And it took a couple of years to find it. During that wondering period and after you came to the realization that you just weren't right for the hockey team or maybe just not good enough, like how did you feel and what was that exploration period like for you, if you can remember? It was very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I've said in, in many, you know, for many people, college is, uh, you know, this great, you know, happy period of their lives. And uh, and for me, that exploration was uncomfortable. It was periodically lonely. I didn't know exactly where I fit, but it did make me work through uh, to come with a fundamental comfort with myself hmm. and who I am and acceptance of who I am. And I think that was a, so I was able to use it in a very healthy way and emerge in a much uh, healthier place. But how do you go, help me understand how you go from the discomfort of not fitting in and not being part of these groups that are pretty popular on campus and exploring to all of a sudden being comfortable with yourself and comfortable in your own skin? There isn't a great answer to that. I mean, I literally, I got comfortable, um, you know, spending more time alone. I did ultimately take what today would be called a gap year. I basically worked and traveled around Europe for a year. And I think that 
one, I spent a lot of time alone because I was in, in foreign countries. Two, it gave me the sense of, I'll say, competence in the outside world that I could just land someplace, find a job, find a place to live and take care of myself. And I came back, I think, to college saying, well, I don't really care about being in a particular social circle. They're not my people. I just don't care. Hmm. And then I was able to focus on uh, focus on school. I had a you know, I did, I, I wrote a senior thesis, which was something that I just threw myself into. And I really enjoyed, it was my favorite academic experience. And I think that was a moment once again, where I realized, um, where I really pushed myself and I, you know, I, I ended up winning an award for that honors thesis. Uh, when I walked into the office, one of the people who handed me the, the award was someone who had been, um, my, tutor for sophomore year. In this case, it's running a, a small seminar. And in sophomore year, he had basically just ripped me apart. And he looked at me and said, this was really good work. I really didn't know that you were capable of it. Wow. I mean, it hurts, right? Because it points out, you know, my limitation. But I think it is another example of being able to push through and transform oneself and one's skills and capabilities and do stuff that you couldn't do two years before. Yeah, that's such a great example, Greg. And I'm just going to keep going. So then you go from one school, uh, one grade school to another. And I, I, I'm assuming you worked in between Harvard, but then you went to Stanford Graduate School of Business. Um, how did you end up there? And what was what was Stanford like? I, I showed up more or less sight unseen. I remember telling people in, uh, uh, that I was going to Stanford and I was going to California and I was going to live on the beach. And they said, you know, it's not any, that really near the beach, right? And I said, no, I didn't know that. Uh, so I didn't know what to expect. Uh, but the honest answer is it was the opposite experience, which is I felt, you know, one, it was a great experience and I felt comfortable right away, right? It was a group of people where I think, um, you know, it was a little bit more, you know, my people, but it was also the case that I think I had grown up and developed and matured enough to the point where I could carry myself into this group of incredibly accomplished, you know, classmates and colleagues, and just forge a set of friendships and relationships and throw myself into learning new stuff. And I remember taking a business to business marketing class, and there was just about nobody in the class, like nobody cared about business to business anything, which is now basically what I've done my entire career. I think the most impactful thing that I did is that uh, five friends and I started a nonprofit organization uh, built around helping small businesses in and around uh, East Palo Alto, a neighboring community. And that was really my big project for the time. That's where I made my best friendships during that period. And, uh, and you know, it was an organization that we started from scratch. So it was really my first entrepreneurial experience, even though it was it, a nonprofit. Is that where you caught sort of the bug, you know, for assembling a team, finding a need, you know, building a culture within this team, you know, even though it was around nonprofits, like, did you kind of catch the bug when you saw the impact that that team could have? Absolutely. And I think it also comes from one other place. I have always wanted to operate in open space. I've never really liked being told what to do. I've never been particularly good at accepting uh, direction from other places. And as I embedded myself in Silicon Valley and the culture of Silicon Valley, it was really clear to me that that was the place where you could just charge into the, into the forest and figure things out on your own. 
you know, that was incredibly appealing to me. So how did you end up at Sutter Hill Ventures? And why was it right for you? And what, you know, Sutter Hill, from what I know, is kind of a different, a sort of venture capital beast itself. What, what was that like? Uh, it was an incredible place. And a, you know, I came in not doing the venture capital business at all. And so I really had to learn and to, and to, to, to throw myself into it. I remember literally coming out of the meeting the first day, going back to sit at my office with a phone on it and a computer and twiddling my thumbs and thinking, okay, what would I do if I were a real venture capitalist now? <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I was there with some very experienced people. I got to learn the trade with a, you know, great group and experienced group and a, and a very highly accomplished group. Mm. And I'd say the thing that made it a great fit is we were always willing to invest as early as, as we could, the sooner the better, right? Including willing to incubate stuff from scratch. It was a place that was committed to being a, a great partner, but that was really um, the primary investor working with the founder. There wasn't any, at the time, any semblance of an operating team or the like. So it was really focused on how do you best support a founder and how do you lead in the boardroom and how do you clear room for them to operate and, you know, we focused on that for, uh, you know, for, for, for a decade, and it was a great experience. So uh, a, a former guest on this show was a guy named Gene Berdachevsky, the, uh, the founder of Sela Nanotechnology. Do you know Gene? I do, absolutely. Gene is amazing. Yeah, he is. He was a great, great guest. And he spoke so highly of, I guess, Mike Spicer as a, a, as a mentor and someone who really wasn't afraid to roll up his sleeves and help Sela in the early days. I mean, how did guys like Mike and colleagues at Sutter Hill inform your philosophy of really, you know, getting in early and, you know, taking big risk on a smaller number of companies and rolling up your sleeves and kind of getting dirty uh, and helping them out so much? I mean, it, did a lot of your philosophy get shaped in those early days at Sutter Hill? Absolutely. No, I think that's right. And I, I think the idea of as early as possible, uh, focused on enterprise and do a, a smaller number of things and do them really, really well and mm -hmm. be willing to concentrate your time and concentrate your capital on those things. You know, I'll call it my natural drive and my natural, you know, desire to uh, contribute, you know, find ways to contribute at the company level. I think um, that sort of rose from within. And I think it's right to say, you know, Mike Spicer, who I think is one of the most successful venture capitalists of this generation, has, you know, brought it to a whole nother level and uh, is incredibly impressive. Sela being one of the, of the many examples, Snowflake being probably the most famous of them. So, Craig, why don't more venture capital firms follow this approach? The biggest temptation is to become an asset gatherer rather than an investor. And so you see people when they start to have success, it, they, they just want to raise more money because more money means, you know, more fees and more shots on goal and the like. And so I do think that, that the desire to raise more money, to be an, an asset gatherer rather than an investor is the siren song of venture capital. I think the second thing is that it is really tempting to be what I will call over-diversified. It ends up in a strategy that, I'll, that I refer to as Johnny Appleseed, spraying seeds here and there. Um, I do that to avoid saying spray and pray, which is the way most people refer to it. 
but it is so tempting to just say, hey, if I make enough bets, the numbers will work for me. And therefore, I'm going to spend all my time chasing deals and none of my time adding value. You know, there's a legitimate debate about you're better off being concentrated or diversified. I will say for me and for us, doing it concentrated and value added is what I think of as the right way. I'm using air quotes, right way to do venture capital. I wouldn't want to do anything else. It, uh, I think it's a, frankly, it's, it's a more interesting way to work. It's a way that venture capital can be, um, help you build an incredible relationships with founders as their primary and foundational partner. And it is, uh, uh, much more useful than just sprinkling capital around. And so you're doing really well and you're moving up the ranks at Sutter Hill and then all of a sudden, or maybe not all of a sudden, you know, maybe it took a lot of time, but you decided to then start your, your own brand new firm. Why? Like any founder, the, the, the real answer lies in the fact that there was a gaping hole in the market and once it was clear to me that it sat there, that is what I felt like I just had to do. Well, what was the, describe the gaping hole to me. Quick back, backstory. In 2000, even going into the e-commerce bubble, Sequoia and all the other great firms that you knew were three or $400 million early stage only funds. They didn't have India or China or Israel or a growth fund or a private equity fund or a heritage fund or any of this other stuff. Then cloud computing happens and cost of starting a company goes down by 50 to 75%. The response of venture firms was not to shrink by 55, by 50 to 75%, but to increase their size by five to 10 X. And so there is your gaping hole. And then the first thing that came in to fill that was what were called super angels or micro VCs. They were dedicated to seed stage, but they were almost always business to consumer focused. And they were almost always what I would call the Johnny Appleseed strategy. So there wasn't anything that was focused on enterprise, focused on early stage, concentrated uh, strategy, and had enough capital and time and energy to be there for the whole journey, what in the trade we call a life cycle investor. And that's the way that I wanted to do the work. And I looked out and there was just nobody doing it. So you saw this gaping hole and I'm just going to say it, you know, were you scared shitless when you first started building this new firm? All of a sudden now you had to convince other people that, you know, they could see the gaping hole too, and they could see your vision and strategy. And you had to raise money and recruit new people and try to find deals. How'd you feel? Scared. And I was anxious and I... I'm fortunate enough to be optimistic and to, and to be driven enough to just put one firm foot in front of the other so that I didn't sit around thinking about how scared I was. A little bit more after the fact, I could look back and see how uh, truly terrifying it was. And, you know, really, I do think this is one where it comes back to just fear of failure. Right, feel of being embarrassed, fear of leaving something great and trying to do something that I thought could be even greater and falling on my face. And uh, it, you know, raising that first fund, even though it went fine, it was the hardest thing I've ever done professionally, and it was, uh, it was, it was deeply taxing emotionally. That's a founder's experience, right? Raising money is hard, 
raising money to get the thing off the ground is even harder. The fear of failure, you, you mentioned that, and I think it's it's so accurate. But what do you mean? Like, who were you most afraid to fail in front of? I would say um, it was it was pure professional failure. So it was I would call it the industry. It was you know my colleagues at Sutter Hill, but also my you know friends throughout the industry. I mean, I honestly remember thinking, uh, oh, if this doesn't work, we're going to have to move. My wife grew up in Sunnyvale. You know, she's from here. I was like, no, no, no. If if this fails, we're going to have to move. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm embarrassed to say it, but that that for sure was my thought process. And that's something that you think a lot of entrepreneurs and founders go through when they're first starting. So you can connect to that emotion on a very deep personal level. Yes. And it's made me a better investor. The relationship that you guys have with founders, I'm starting to, to gather, is, is deeper than other firms. And you must really put a premium on finding entrepreneurs who don't just have a great idea and great IQs. But people, you know, you want to go on this deep dive journey with for the next five or 10 years. So the risk of screwing up is pretty significant. So what kind of people are you looking for? We spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about this and, and refining it. And I'll say, you know, it's, it's pretty clear to me that drive, tenacity, judgment, by which I mean like the ability to synthesize facts when you're operating within the fog of war and make good decisions. And then just relentless learning mm -hmm. because nobody starts a business with all of the tools and skills that they need in order to be successful. So those are the things that, that, that I'm looking for. And I'll say, look, do I want to spend the next decade with this person? Right. Cause it is, it is, you say five to 10 years and, you know, arguably it's, you know, usually, you know, eight to 10 years, but I've had two boards that I was on for 20 years. When you go off on this journey, with someone, you know, you're locked at the hip. And it's very hard to figure out how to separate that and, you know, let the person, you know, go off on, on their own, given all that you've been through together. So someone comes in, two founders come in, they have the greatest idea and they're super smart, but maybe some of these, you know, one or two of these soft skills are missing like the drive or, or the judgment or, you know, the curiosity, hopefully not all of those, but say one or two is missing. Will you take a pass on this brilliant entrepreneur? Um, you can't teach drive. Drive is, I'm not saying that it's innate, like literally DNA, but it comes from someone's being, from someone's upbringing, from what they walk into the room. And what we've seen over and over again is that intensity and velocity in startups is what makes the best companies work. And if you don't have that, I'm sorry, we're just not interested. Someone comes in, they're really excited, you know, and of course they're going to be passionate because they're talking about their idea. How do you know if they're, you know, going to be passionate over the next two, three, five years? I have very explicitly said we're looking for drive, not passion, because the people who pick for passion end up picking Adam Newman. They end up picking arm waivers who can, you know, weave a story, but I'm looking for people who get up in the morning and who get stuff done and who inspire other people to get stuff done and they're still doing it in the evening and they you know deal with adversity and they keep going. And so you we can do our best to assess it in the room, but you know, we have to see it in their prior body of work. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. We have to hear it in their references and what they've brought to other stuff uh, behind them. And then you can ask questions like, 
tell me about the time where you had, you know, your biggest professional failure, your lowest moment. How, you know, what happened? How did you deal with it? How did you respond to it? What happened when you, you know, had an idea that you thought was great that for your team or organization or the like, and the powers that be, you know, thought it was a bad idea? How did you respond to that? What did you do? And so you're looking for those backstories that give you the sense that they are willing to take initiative, are willing to think for themselves, and will keep pushing no matter what. What happens if they say, oh, you know, I'm so good. I've never failed before. That's when I think by the time you do half a dozen references and you start stitching those pieces together, you know, there's always something. Um, so if someone says they're so good they haven't failed, then they have no self-awareness and, and you know, on its face, I think, you know, highly unlikely to be um, to be very interesting. But I think you start finding those cracks in the armor and you say, hey, tell me about this. Let's probe a little bit deeper. And so some of that is actually creating a zone of safety where people feel comfortable talking about those things. And then that ends up being the founder investor relationship that I'm looking to have for the next decade, where I'm the one who gets the first call about the bad news because I take it well and I'm productive and I help them figure out how to move forward, but they have to be willing to go there. If they're pretending they're perfect and that there, you know, isn't complexity and adversity and failure in the world. They're, they're either not self-aware or they're not, or they're not stretching themselves far enough. So either way, it's not great. Exactly. It's so amazing. So you create this zone of safety. How does one do that? I think the key to creating that zone of safety is empathy and authenticity. Actually listening, actually caring, responding to not just the fact of, oh, we missed a quarter or, oh, my key executive is leaving, but the feelings and emotions they have and that they're going through in order to transition into something productive. And then I think the second is, look, it's an actual relationship. So uh, some of that is, I think, it's one of the reasons I was so excited to come on your podcast is actually be willing to share my own journey, my own imperfections, my own struggles. And I think that actually ends up in a place where we're working together to solve problems as peers and colleagues, not an investor sitting on top and a founder sitting below. I think that's an unhealthy relationship. That's beautifully said. And so in a, in a real sense, this your vulnerability in interacting with a, a future founder or an existing founder isn't a sign of weakness at all. In fact, it's probably a, a, the ultimate sign of strength. Absolutely. Look, I think it's ultimately going back all the way back to the early part of our conversation. It's actually a sign of complete comfort with myself and who I am and, you know, what I have to offer. And so I don't, I can focus on building a relationship and not focus on selling. What about judgment? How can you tell, like, like you said, the world is so VUCA, you know, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, and things change so quickly. How can you tell if a founder or someone you want to work with is going to be able to really focus in on the right things, the right data, you know, um, 
think with mental clarity and have actual good judgment in moving forward. How do you tell that when you're interviewing a founder? It's very hard. And I think the, the first easy test is they are, you know, they are going through the process of, of working to create this business. The whole strategy needs to hang together. Mm -hmm. So the first test is, have they thought through all of the elements of the current business? which customer you're going after, therefore, which product and product features are most important, therefore, how much does it cost, therefore, what's your go-to-market motion for it. And then when one of those things changes, everything else needs to change around it because it's, it's literally like the, um, you know, it's just this connected chain. And so I think the, you know, we have to do that knowing that the business is being invented right before our eyes. They don't know all the answers. We don't know all the answers. But we're trying to see how they think and do they think in ways that integrate those pieces and tie them together. That's, that's number one. The second is you have to go back to prior examples in their career. And it's easy for people who are mid-career because they've had so much professional experience. They've run product launches. They've built stuff. They've hired people. They've let people go. Mm -hmm. In that context, there can be no pretense mm -hmm. that they've done everything right or that it was always obvious. And so you go through those examples and ask what they learned and would they do things the same way? And then you go do the references and make sure that it isn't just the narrative, that it's actually true. Is judgment like drive in that, you know, it's something kind of like you're born with and it's not as easy to help someone learn how to have more drive. Is judgment the same? No, I think judgment actually, it, it very much develops over time. And I think one can put in the energy to uh, change the trajectory. And I'll give you an example. We largely invest in technical founders. When you think about building the sales and marketing part of the organization, they know, they often know very little and are learning it on the job. And that our job is to be their partner in that and to help be a teacher and coach. This is why we have this big builder ops team. But you can't have judgment about things where you don't have the building blocks of knowledge. So they show up and they have absolutely no judgment about go-to-market. And so we, we have to separate the fact that they don't have some of those building blocks of knowledge and work on putting those in place so that their you know, judgment and their cognitive abilities to synthesize complex information uh, can actually can actually develop. How about like going into, you know, this huge customer pitch or something marketing or, you know, something that requires that personality and charisma to shine through to get a customer to say yes. And I think back, you know, of our old mutual friend, Gene Berdachevsky at Sela Nanotechnologies, who was this brilliant engineer that had to learn these skills that you're describing on the fly. I mean, how do you and your ops team partner with some of your entrepreneurs to get them so comfortable in their own skin that they're not only not afraid to go to a new client pitch, but they become good at it over time. It's, this is what this is the fun part of the business because we literally get to see people grow in front of our eyes and transform themselves and be capable of doing stuff that they couldn't do a year or two or three before. And so each of these things is a, is a learning journey. And in this particular one, it actually, we think the first building block is teaching the founders to sell. And going through that process and selling themselves is the, that's the first building block. Mm -hmm. The second part of it is 
saying, okay, you need other people in the organization have to get in front of customers and, and talk to them. So think of that as hiring the first couple of sales reps or, you know, business development people. And so there we, you know, we work with them, scope it right and bring the right people in the door. And uh, our, our partner, Jim Wilson, does most of that work. Helping them be successful at that chunk is, you know, is critically important because they literally have no idea to, to who to hire, right? right? And right. then having, they have some existence proof and they've seen some of it happen and the like. And then when that starts working, they need to hire a manager, a sales manager, or director for that person. And once again, they have no idea who to hire. So we work with them on coming up with role scope, evaluating people, putting the right people in. And then usually after that three-step process, they're on their way. It's so amazing. And I could tell by the way that your voice lights up that this really is one of the most interesting and rewarding parts of your job. I, look, I think at this point in my career, I have actually been able to say, you know, why I show up is to build relationships with people that I like. And I show up to uh, help people uh, explore and, and, and find their, and, and their full potential. Everything else is a, comes, is, a, is a manifestation of those underlying motivations and, and, and drives. Mm -hmm. And seeing people grow, and that includes people in our organization at Costa Noa, and it includes the founders and the people on their, in their organizations, is the most professionally rewarding thing I do. Suppose there is that, you know, uh, introverted engineer that's very technically oriented. Does that person, in order to transform to become this, you know, a good salesperson, does that mean that introvert needs to become extroverted? Does that mean that, you know, he or she needs to become more charismatic? Or is it more, to use your words from earlier, just more authentic and comfortable in their own skin with their own approach that works for them, whatever that might be? I think it's very much the latter. People of very different personality types can be really successful founders and leaders. It's why earlier on I said, I'm not looking for passion. You mm -hmm. don't have to be extroverted. In fact, I think some of the best leaders are introverted, but they have, they're conscious of what's easy for them to do. They're conscious of the couple of things they, they, where they need to push themselves and go outside of their comfort zone. And then they build, build teams that complement them and pull those pieces together. I think it's a great misnomer that the best CEOs have to be extroverted and charismatic. And so you mentioned this a few times um, for people at Costa Noa, for your founders, for yourself. Tell me about the importance of humility and having this growth mindset. I think particularly in our business, willingness and ability to understand that you don't know everything, that the world is complex, that it will change, that the future is uncertain. And with that, say, my job is just to get better every day. I think this is a place where a sports, you know, sports as a, as a, as a youth helps mm -hmm. just get better every day. Mm -hmm. I don't need to be great today, but I need to get better. I think there's one other benefit of this growth mindset, mm -hmm. which is for someone who's driven and especially someone who's a perfectionist or who wants to be seen as successful, the growth mindset is an antidote to fear. Mm. What do you mean? So if my job is to win or to be famous or to have my 
company be successful or to make money, then I need a certain outcome. And the fear and anxiety builds as I get into this place where I need a certain outcome to happen. It has to happen or I, you know, lose ego, lose pride. I think the shift of reference frame to say, hey, look, I know I'm not perfect today. Hence the title of your of your show. My job is just to get better. My job is to get better in every dimension of my life. And I think where there's a natural drive, basically putting that lens on it and using that to focus the effort rather than pure accomplishment and its associated rewards is a much healthier place, but it can give every bit as much output. Uh, You know, what kind of culture have you created at Costa Noa? And what do you like about it? And, you know, what do you think you need to improve still? I I love our culture. That's probably not surprising given that I've, you know, shaped a, a lot of it. I think the, it resembles many of the things that we've talked about today. There's a fundamental uh, drive and relentlessness. Mm-hmm. There is uh, uh, curiosity about figuring things out, trying to get as close to ground truth as we can. Uh, there's an intellectual honesty, intellectual honesty and humility come together. And there's a sense of team and camaraderie. We can do more together than we can do separately. And that is not the way that most venture capital firms run. When I look at your website, you know, it's, it screams right away that there's more diversity at your firm than a, a lot of firms in general, but definitely in Silicon Valley venture capital firms. But does that diversity alone, is that enough uh, for inclusivity and innovation that comes from that raw material of diversity? Or do you have to do some hard work to get those benefits? Oh, we, there's definitely hard work to get those benefits. Uh, you know, we all know the research that diverse teams outperform uh, monoculture teams. And that's diversity along a lot of dimensions. It includes race, it includes gender, but it also includes, you know, psychographic dimensions and profiles and the like. And so if we, we need to create a place where everybody can do their best work and everyone can realize their full potential and for example, creating more space for the introverts, asking if anyone has anything they'd like to say. It includes being, I'll call it multimodal, meaning a lot happens in writing and a lot happens spoken, but there are people who are way better in writing and therefore we need to create space for that. I'm, you know, If you look at long-term motivations, I think a place where people belong, a place where people feel safe to take risks and to fail uh, at times, is a place where uh, I think we're going to be better and get better. And so we've intentionally worked on, uh, on doing that, including in the context of the current difficult you know, financial environment, looking at people and saying, look, some companies are, are, are going to fail and it's going to be okay. Right? It isn't a permanent black market on your record. It isn't, you know, let's just deal with reality as it is and take full advantage of the opportunities that we have. And when you have so many people that are so diverse in all of the dimensions that you've spoken about, you're going to have a lot of conflicting ideas, especially if you have a safe space for them to speak up and voice their perspective. So how do you create that kind of culture that allows for a healthy back and forth debate rather than people just getting super mad at each other? Uh, We're trying hard. So this, this is the answer to your question of what are we working on? And what am I working on as, as a leader? 
And so I think we're on that journey, but not at the end state. It has included simple things like Greg keeps his mouth shut and doesn't end up dominating the room and, you know, lets the process work itself out more often than not. Uh, I think it has included, uh, for example, we vote on uh, investments in a way that's blinded so that everybody isn't influenced by their peers before they say what they really think. And then I think I've even highlighted places of, of conflict, you know, including with you know, my, my partner, uh, Mark Selko, who I've known for 25 years, and he's been, uh, we, we've worked together for the last 20. I was on his board for a decade uh, at, at his second company that he started. You know, I've, I've taken Mark and said, hey, Mark, you're being too nice. Um, it looks like you really don't like this deal that I'm working on. It's okay. Tell everybody that you really don't like it and why you don't like it. And I think modeling that kind of behavior that it's okay for the two of us to just disagree mm-hmm. has been really important. And then the last thing is that when we were a smaller firm, you could look at it and say, hey, we should agree before we should do anything. And we've actually created space where you get the benefit of everybody's input, but if the team that's working on something has answered those questions to their satisfaction and is pounding the table and really wants to do it, we're better if they have the autonomy to do that. Hmm. And so we had to, that, that makes it safer for people to voice their disagreements or their concerns because it doesn't blackball a deal all on its own. On this dimension, we are way better uh, now than we were two years ago. And so I think we can, we can see that progress. But no, in part because we're nice and good human beings who want to treat each other well, and we do, uh, that we have to be conscious of saying, yes, but that doesn't mean we, we can still have disagreements and discussions on, on the facts, and we can disagree vehemently on them. And we're still testing that boundary. Is this model that you have for Costa Noa like a good model for the portfolio companies? I would think that you would want them to embrace at least some parts of this culture that you're creating. I think it is a, I think it is a very good culture and culture and strategy, you know, meld together. There, there's exponential power when those two are well aligned. But it does need to be created around the company, around the strategy, around the leader and leadership team. And so while I am, uh, you know, I and we are a source of influence and try to help people create positive cultures, they're trying to create their culture where we're one of the influences in it. It, it would be wrong for us to say, hey, our culture is right and therefore, you, you know, you, you should adopt it. I don't think that that would uh, I don't think it would work. It's a great it's a great example. And basically what you're trying to do is help them be authentic. You know, the founders really understand their authentic leadership style and then to create a culture around that rather than force feeding them your culture, despite how great your culture is for you. Yes, exactly. I, you know, you talk this thing about introverts and extroverts, right? I think if you say, you know, you can be great regardless of that dimension and, and even some others, but you've got to be an authentic leader and you've got to, build a culture around what you're, you know, how you're capable of leading. And that I think is where people end up with uh, really healthy cultures that support 
the founder's leadership and support the strategy. So it's been a decade now and the results are in and you guys have crushed it. How much longer are you going to stay at the helm of Costa Noa? So I can't imagine doing anything else. I love my job. I can't believe I get to do it every day. I wake up with a smile on my face and I get right to it. And I'm, you know, working into the evening. And uh, so I think the, that I think is the first question to answer. Mm-hmm. And the, then the second thing is, look, we're growing and developing our team. Our team has incredible capabilities. It's, you know, like I said, it's been one of the joys of my career of seeing that group develop. I'm just going to keep putting one foot in front of the other and we'll keep talking to each other and treating each other as partners and colleagues and that'll work itself out. When you finally do step down, even if that's feet first at the age of 100, what do you want your legacy to, legacy to be? Like what would make you really proud? More than anything, uh, uh, this will sound a little trite, but look, I would like to prove that the good guys can win. I would like to prove that you can be at the top of this industry and do it with positivity, with humility, you know, even with uh, grace and to treat people well and to be an instrument of other people developing their lives and their careers and their beings. And, you know, to me, those things all really line up with each other. And uh, that I think is, you know, more than anything, what I'd uh, like to be my legacy when I'm done. Greg, this is a short conversation. And even though our listeners might not believe it, I've never met you before. But this has been a totally, totally inspirational conversation. Thank you so much for your time, your insight, and most of all, your vulnerability. It's my pleasure, Jeff. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation and we'll look forward to continuing this as a relationship into the future. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we hope you enjoyed today's conversation. If you'd like to attend and join deep dive discussions, please visit www.imperfectleaders.com. Until then, we'll see you next week.